Lord, you are worthy. We do not come before you this day proclaiming our worth, proclaiming our righteousness. Though we come singing of your righteousness and your worth and the righteousness that has now been imputed to us through the death, the resurrection, and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that we gather today in this hope, in this confidence of Christ's saving grace. And I pray now that as we search your word and as we speak of it together today, that we would be edified and encouraged and sanctified. We have so far to go. But I thank you for the work that you are doing in this church to continue to build us up in the faith through your word. Thank you for that word that we have been singing, for these truths of the new life, and we rejoice in them together, praying in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior and seeking you here together today as believers in Jesus. Guide us, may we pursue Christ's likeness as you bring conviction and teach and direct us for the glory of your name. Through our Savior we pray, amen. Please be seated. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. How do you relate to an enemy? What is your normal response, your typical approach? How do you think about people who willfully oppose you, who seek to do you harm in some manner? It's common to think that How I relate to my friends is the measure of my character. If I'm a good friend, a loyal friend, an encouraging friend, that is a test of who I really am. But how I treat my enemies is really a truer test of my heart. How we relate to our enemies is one of the surest evidences of the transformational power of God at work in our lives through His indwelling Spirit. You've perhaps heard the story so recently told in a movie and in a biography of Louis Zamperini, an Olympic runner who served in World War II. May of 1943, he found himself flying with an aging bomber, and it malfunctioned and crashed in the Pacific Ocean. 
He was captured by the Japanese and was imprisoned. And in that war camp, a guard named Machuhiro Watanabe tortured Lewis mercilessly and repeatedly. Following his release as a prisoner of war, nightmares of his torturous abuse at the hands of Watanabe crushed the life out of Lewis. He turned to all the wrong places and he crumbled from within. His enemy still torturing him in his dreams night after miserable night. In the darkest state of ruinous despair, Lewis met Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The Christ who died for his enemies. And eventually, through sanctification, Lewis wrote a letter to Watanabe, the guard who tortured him to an inch of his life again and again, and he explained that he had become a follower of Jesus Christ. He explained that he wanted to travel to Japan at his own expense to meet with Watanabe and express his forgiveness. In the letter, he wrote these words of explanation. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Love replaced the hate that I had for you. It's normal in this warring world for people to hate their enemies and to seek vengeance against them. But we have a different master, we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a master who said these words, these strange, transformative words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your friends Jesus continued, nothing special, no particular reward in that, takes no unique power. Even unbelievers love those who love them. It is love for enemies that really marks the followers of Jesus Christ, to mark them as those who are following Him and His directives. It's love for enemies that tests the metal of our faith and displays the transformational power of the Spirit in us. How do you treat your enemies? As the Apostle Paul continues his list of new life, Christ-like faithfulness, he takes up this theme in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, issuing several exhortations here. First of all, we find in verse 17 through 19, by way of prohibition, we must not retaliate against our enemies, simply said. We notice here, first of all, in verse 17, that it is not Christ-like to get even with our enemies. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Evil in the place of evil. It is our nature that when a person does evil to me, I respond by doing evil in return. I may not do the same evil, but I get even. 
I even the score. But we are not to respond in kind when enemies harm us. Rather, as verse 17 says, you notice the but there, repay no one evil for evil, but do this, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What does that mean? There's two schoolboys that are fighting at recess. And the teacher looks up and, he, and, and she sees one boy punch the other boy in the face. Just haul off and drill him. And she runs into the scene and she intervenes and she rebukes the boy who threw the punch. What she did not see is that the boy who got hit had been bullying and tormenting and verbally abusing the first boy at recess for weeks. And when that boy finally threw that punch, all of the schoolmates around him celebrated and rejoiced and said, finally! But the teacher who did not know the context rightly judged the punch as evil. I think... This phrase, what Paul is saying is this. We should treat those who do evil to us in a way that is deemed honorable by everyone who's in the position of that teacher. As people do not know the context, do not know what has happened to us, do not know how this is getting even and therefore in our fleshly way of thinking justified to those people. We should present ourselves as always doing what is right. We may find friends who encourage us to repay evil with evil, to retaliate, who cheer us, in fact, when we do it. Who say, finally, you stood up to this. Finally, you got even. We'll find friends like that, but we should do nothing that could be fairly judged as wrong by someone who is ignorant of the evil committed against us. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When dealing with an enemy, we should be willing to make public every email. We should be willing to make public every private conversation, although it would not probably be appropriate to do so and could be harmful to the enemy to do so, we should be willing to do that. To say nothing, to write nothing that could not be displayed to the watching world. So, when someone wrongs me, I am to respond by doing what is right, not repaying evil for evil. Secondly, verse 18, it is Christ-like to pursue peace with our enemies. We must not retaliate against them, but positively pursue peace with them. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We will all relate to someone who wants to go to war with us. 
If that hasn't been the case yet in your life, just hang on. Somewhere along the way, you're going to run into somebody who just wants to go to war with you. Someone who does not like you, who wants you to fail or wishes you harm in some way. With a warm greeting, extending a favor, meeting a need, with a word of commendation or a word of encouragement, we can sow the seeds of peace with such a person. Now sometimes people will reject such peacemaking efforts. And some may demand that we dishonor Christ in exchange for peace. In such cases, of course, peace is not possible. We cannot control an enemy. And we cannot be disloyal to Christ in order to gain peace. But if you are at war with someone, ask yourself honestly the question, am I confident that Jesus places no blame on me for this war? As Christ assesses the situation, he sees me laboring as a peacemaker. So the goal is that I may not secure peace with my enemy, but I am not to blame Because I want peace, I'm honestly working to secure peace. And I could prove that in a court of law. Given an objective judge, the judge could say, you are a peacemaker. You are seeking peace with this individual who is seeking war with you. Maybe you come today with a troubled marriage. There's a lot of war between husband and wife. Take this home. Ask yourself this question. Does Jesus assess me as a peacemaker? Does he see that I am pursuing peace with all of my heart? Or am I part of am I an adjutant? Am I part of the problem? Children, as you relate to your parents, there can sometimes be war in the home. Are you seeking peace? Parents, are we seeking peace? Not in a way that concedes what we should not concede. Our authority as parents. But are we striving for peace? And children, I ask you particularly, if there's struggles at home with mom and dad, do you play the part of a peacemaker? Are you striving to be at peace with your parents? It might be trouble with a neighbor or workmate. Can you honestly say, as far as it depends on me, I am seeking to live at peace with the one who seems intent on being at war with me? Thirdly, verse 19, it is not Christ-like to exact vengeance on our enemies. Beloved, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. People wrong us. When they do, we are not to administer justice. Now there are times, let me qualify, there are times when the authorities can and should be called to apply the law of the land. There are times the church should exercise discipline or perhaps pastors that should intervene in a situation. 
So please understand, this is not a directive to brush aside every wrong, to run away from it as if it has never happened, to allow injustice to just continue unaddressed. I'm not saying that. There's a lot of specifics that have to be brought into the equation. But it is a command never to say, I am going to exact justice. I will avenge this wrong done to me. Those are not the words of a follower of Christ walking in obedience. Those are the words, that is the spirit of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. Remember that speech? A young man struck me and I took him out. I exacted vengeance sevenfold. I know how to take care of myself. I crush my enemies. That's the spirit of Lamech, bellowing in pride that he did not need God's protection. He would avenge himself. That's the spirit Paul speaks against, that our Savior's character points us away from. In the opposite direction of Lamech's boast, we as followers of Jesus are, verse 19, not to avenge ourselves, but, there again, the contrast, positively, we are to leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice that phrase, verse 19, leave it to. The Greek is literally, but give place to the wrath. Give place to the wrath. The wrath, the ultimate wrath, can only refer, I think, properly to the wrath of God, to the vengeance, to the judgment of God. And the quotation from Deuteronomy 32-35 pretty much clinches that interpretation. So give place to the wrath is rightly saying, give room for God to exercise His judgment. Paul is teaching us here. The Spirit of God is directing you, Christian, and me. When I take vengeance, when I take justice into my own hands, when I labor to exact justice against the one who has wronged me, I elbow God out of the way. I come between my enemy and God with my back to God and my face to my enemy and I get in there to set things right. Paul says, back off. Get out of God's way. Let Him handle your enemy. So to leave room for God's vengeance means that I must step aside and let God handle what only God can handle. Never are we less capable of speaking for God than when we are fighting for self. We might ask, when will God exact vengeance against those who wrong us? It could be discipline in this life. It could be the judgment of God in eternity. But if someone does evil to me and that individual repents of their sin, I must forgive as God forgives and I really should rejoice to do so. As I join in on the project of Jesus, I forgive where there is that repentance. If someone does evil to me and refuses to repent, never comes to terms with God, I can know that the discipline of a believer, or the final judgment of God will satisfy all just demands for eternity. 
Here is where our faith in God really comes into play. I believe He's there. I believe that He is the final judge. I don't have to equalize everything. I can trust Him to do what is right for eternity. So He will come with discipline in this life or He will come in judgment in the next. I can know this. Nobody is getting away with anything ever. Nobody is getting away with anything ever. I can rest in that. But when I elbow God out of the way, exacting justice, acting as my own judge and jury, I, in a sense, hinder the work that God can do. I'm in there trying to battle to even things out. And the problem is me. This really demands faith in God. And gladly, it commends faith in God that I trust Him to handle what has gone wrong against me. That I trust Him for eternity. I can know that He has it covered. The beautiful truth is that I can live in peace knowing that God has this. Now, stepping aside to let God render discipline or final judgment does not mean that we are to walk away, to wash our hands of the matter, to just turn our back on an enemy and do nothing further. There is the prohibitions that we have considered. There is also the admonition that we consider. We must do positively good to our enemies, verse 20. So we must not retaliate against our enemies. That is not the orientation of a believer. But we must do good to our enemies. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. To satisfy the hungry stomach, to quench the thirst of an enemy, is figurative speech for meeting every legitimate need. Remember, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. It's in that kind of spirit. Give him food. Give him drink. The basic needs of life. Give him anything else that is right and necessary and appropriate. So the call, Christian, here it is, to act with thoughtful kindness toward your enemies. Doing them good. Because the word enemy shows up here, I've delayed this question. But let's bring it up here. What is an enemy? A lot of faulty definitions can come in here. I can think that an enemy is someone who does not make much of me. That's not an enemy, necessarily. I can think that an enemy is someone who does not appreciate my talents and abilities. They just don't judge me properly. They don't assess me properly. That's not necessarily an enemy. I can think that an enemy is someone who rebukes or corrects me or who simply disagrees with me. That is not an enemy. Remember the instruction of the book of Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instructions despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains wisdom. There are reproofs that people can deliver that are really wisdom, not an enemy attacking me. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke 
goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Now, a rebuke can come from an enemy, but a rebuke that is helpful very generally, is, at least generally, is coming from a friend, from someone who loves you enough to say what needs to be said. And even if they're not all right, they could be partly right and helpful. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So no, it's not this. This is not an enemy, someone who just disagrees with you or says something to correct you or doesn't appreciate you the way you would like to be appreciated. That's not an enemy. An enemy is someone who's trying to kill you because you're a Christian. We'll all agree on that definition. That's an enemy. An enemy is someone who speaks evil against you falsely, who slanders, who accuses unjustly, who invents harmful stories about you. They are positioned towards you to tear you apart. An enemy can be a family member who wields abusive speech or lives in such a way that opposes all you want to legitimately accomplish. And I don't think we have to be overworked about the definition of an enemy. But we need to understand, this is illegitimate attack. This is an opposition that wants to harm and bring down. An enemy can be an associate, a neighbor, who chooses to despise you for no good reason. An enemy is one who chooses to go to war with you, resists reconciliation, and wishes you ill. Someone who says, I don't want a good relationship with you. I prefer, for any number of reasons, to be at war with you. That's an enemy. So we can't get that confused. But as we discern what an enemy really is, we learn this, going out of our way to meet the needs of someone like that is our calling. Wow. I don't find that natural. I find it quite easy. Indeed, isn't there something of a little bit of a pleasure to try to harm an enemy, at least to ignore them, but not to actively do good for them. But this is the new life that we have in Christ. This is the renewed way of thinking, the transformed life that we find in verses 1 and 2, the way of rethinking how to do life. It's to do good to those who are positioned to do harm to me. That takes faith. That takes the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. That takes me saying, at least fundamentally, at the beginning of the equation, I want to be be like Jesus. I say this a little bit with tongue-in-cheek, but I'm not going to be like a superhero. Isn't that what drives a lot of the story, is vengeance? I mean, there's a place I think that can be enjoyed, but there's a place where that superhero mentality gets into our way of thinking when it's no longer fun and now it's serious. 
I will exact vengeance. I will set things right. I will attack my enemies. There's a problem, let me come back to it, with a faulty definition of enemy. False definitions actually lower the standard of responsibility. They lower the standard of responsibility in this way. It may be hard to love someone who disagrees with you. But that is not nearly as difficult as loving someone who is against you and seeking to harm you. See, we can, we can come up with this, this narrow definition, this faulty definition of who our enemies are and say, well, I love my enemies. And really all I'm doing is loving somebody who hasn't given me all I want or disagrees with me a little bit here or there. This is cranked up a lot higher than that. This is Zamperini loving the man who tortured him, doing good to him, reaching out to seek reconciliation with him. This is looking that person in the eye who wants to do you harm and to speak kindly and to pursue good by words of commendation, encouragement, and by acts of love. So it may be hard to love someone who is opposed to us, but not an enemy. Loving an enemy takes nothing less than the grace of God. Faith in Christ, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Everything said about an enemy applies to these other people. And for such people, yes, of course, we should do good. But Paul points us here to doing that hard work of loving those who want to harm us. What happens when we do that? What happens when we love one who is seeking harm with us? Verse 20. By doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's much debate about the meaning of this phrase. I'm not going to give the various views and lay out why I believe what I believe. I'll just give you my own conclusion. But I think that it is true that the image, this image of burning coals on one's head is consistently used in Scripture of God's judgment. We might think of it in terms almost like Sodom and Gomorrah as God rained down fire upon the heads of these people in judgment. That type of theme is very consistent where we find this fiery language found in context of judgment. And I see no reason to take it otherwise here. The phrase is commonly interpreted to say it, it will bring shame to the individual and often a, a, an Egyptian parallel is found. But I think if we stay with the biblical context, with the Old Testament, we don't need to go to Egypt to find some sort of strange practice where may or may not have happened. I think what we find here really is a biblical theme of the judgment of God. So certainly this could include a response of shame, but I think the idea links more naturally to verse 19b. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you do good, and what's going to happen? Burning coals will be heaped on your enemy's head. What's the problem with that interpretation? The problem is that seems at first blush to conflict with the context. 
If I'm to love my enemy, if I'm to do good to those who do harm to me, why would I want judgment to fall on their head? That seems in conflict with loving your enemy. How can increasing an enemy's judgment by God constitute love for one's enemies? Well, I think the point is that our confidence that God will exact justice in the end, is the solid ground on which our faith can stand when we choose to love an enemy. I don't think we're ever going to do this apart from that confidence. This is why people go around shooting people. They've got no sense of final judgment. For those that have wronged them, no sense of a God who will judge. For themselves, killing people, no sense of meeting God in eternity. But I think that's what Paul is laying out here. We will pour burning coals upon their head. It's put so well by John Piper this way. Explains verse 20, does not present the conscious aim of the believer. I'm not hoping for the judgment of my enemy but it states the framework of justice in which enemy love becomes possible and good, a framework founded on God's own righteousness. The righteousness of God is what we stand on. That's our solid ground. That's why we can relate to enemies this way. There is a God in heaven who will exact justice for the glory of His name, and I can rest in that. And those great truths about the greatness of God changes the way that I relate to individuals in my life. It changes my life. I'm transformed by that knowledge through faith in it. Then, verse 21, by way of summation, we must resist evil by overcoming it with good Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil can never overcome evil. When we seek to conquer evil with evil, we permit ourselves to be sucked into the vortex of evil, and no one wins, ever. We, of course, are never to repay good with evil. We are never to repay evil with evil, nor are we to repay evil with ignoring our enemy. When an enemy wrongs us, the Christ-like response is to do good to that enemy. And that's what I think Louis Zamperini sought to do by flying to Japan and reaching out to the man who tortured him. Sadly, the negative reality of verse 18 came into play and Watanabe refused any attempt at reconciliation But as far as it relied on him, Lewis sought to forgive. It took nothing less than a new heart to reach out in grace to a man who once tormented you nearly to death, to extend grace to a man who sought to crush your soul. To seek to forgive, to seek reconciliation, to introduce that man to Jesus Christ. I don't think Lewis found that power in himself. To love an enemy in those ways, the power to reach out in love to our enemies requires nothing less than spiritual union with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. 
It took death to sin and the resurrection power of Christ in his soul. That's what it took. There's no one here today that is likely ever to endure anything like the hellish torture of an enemy who is intent on killing you. That's probably not in the future of any of us here. Could be, but that's unlikely. But with much less suffering, we struggle to love our enemies. We struggle to actively reach out and do good to those who are trying to harm us in some small way. Or perhaps it is some significant way. And obviously there's need for counsel along these lines depending on what that suffering is and how that suffering is being experienced. Again, there may be authorities that need to intervene. There may be counsel that you need. There may be encouragement that is appropriate and right. But in a general sense, in principle, as we follow Christ, we are to overcome evil with good, with positive good reaching out to our enemies. And the key to this goes back. It's not isolated from the context of Romans. It's integrated with it. It goes back, for instance, to chapters 6 through 8 and our union with our Savior who has died and risen again. Our union with the Savior who died for His enemies, in fact. Why does Paul say these things to us? It is because of the Savior that we serve. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to the death of it, by the death of His Son. Romans 5, 8-10 united to Jesus in His death to sin and in His resurrection life, we have by His grace the power to do the humanly impossible, to love our enemies by doing good to them. This is how Jesus, Christian, loved you. If He had not loved His enemies, we would be eternally lost. This is not the spirit of Lamech in Genesis 4. Retaliation and vengeance in defiance against our enemies. This is the spirit of Joseph in Genesis 50 who received and forgave and sought reconciliation with his brothers. The brothers who sold him into slavery. Who heard him crying, the psalmist said, and turned away in bitter hateful disregard. He brought them near. He reached out in goodness. And He forgave. This ultimately is the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is an ignorance here that would permit by the grace of God a forgiveness to come. These people torturing me and harming me, forgive them. Jesus 
praying for his enemies who crucified him and dying for his enemies. Us. This is good news. It might be very good news for you. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, there is not a confidence that His Spirit has come to indwell you. Maybe one way of testing that is just saying, I don't get this. I don't think there's wisdom in this. I don't see this as beautiful or right. I got people that have harmed me, and I got the only thing I want to do is crush them. I really don't even want to go there to love my enemies. That kind of response going on right now in your heart may very well be, I would say, in fact, is an evidence that you've not seen Christ. You've not come to perceive the beauty of what He has done for sinners. To take the unbeliever's place and to pay the sin and the penalty of it. You are that enemy. And maybe earlier you were saying, what's wrong with Watanabe? I mean, a long time's passed, and shouldn't he get over it? He's the one that did the wrong. Why would he not receive that guy and try to you know, build some bridge there? Well, ironically, you may be exactly in that same place as you look at the death of Jesus Christ for his enemies, and you say, I don't need that. You do need it desperately. And I speak to you the good news that though you were an enemy because of your sin, though you are an enemy because of your sin, Christ's death reconciles sinners to God. Come to Him. Embrace Him. Be reconciled to God. How could you spurn Jesus' provision of grace and forgiveness, which He extends to sinners? And Christians, we must come to terms with how we relate to our enemies. How do you think about them? What is your approach? Are you in the quiet of your mind, in your own imagination, harming them and hurting them? A man tell me, this week, in a store, I've got no idea why, but he came up to me and told me about how he wanted to shoot his enemies with a gun. I was really ha happy I wasn't his enemy at the moment. I was just weird. Probably needed some help. Is that how we think? And again, I come back to those, sometimes that enemy is really close to home. Sometimes it's a mate. Maybe some marriages actually get to the place where there really is enmity and hostility that is going on there. I say to you, if you're in a marriage such as that, arranging in that way, do good. Seek peace. Even that close, obey Christ. Or it may be for you a workmate, a neighbor, an official, a parent, this is an opportunity to follow in the ways of Jesus. Not to imagine shooting our enemies. Not imagine exacting justice. But looking to the cross and knowing that there justice was achieved. And that Christ loved us. 
when we love an enemy, when we return good for evil, we image the reconciling power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We live out the gospel actively. It's an opportunity to walk with Christ. So Christian, may we leave this place today rejoicing in the one who loved us as his enemies and died to reconcile us to the Father. May we rejoice that in his grace we receive that invitation to come to him and to receive that forgiveness. And may God help us as we talk together today in home groups, as we encourage one another further following this service to learn the ways of Jesus who gave himself for sinners who died for his enemies, crucified that we might have forgiveness and life. May we live out and display that kind of transformational, radical love for enemies. Let's pray. Lord, aid us to this end. It's not a message that we take lightly because it's not a message that makes us very comfortable We sense, Lord, our weakness and our sin. We sense how our flesh bends in the very opposite direction, how we listen to the voices of this world and its way of dealing with enemies. I pray that we'd come to the cross today. And I pray that we would consider what Christ has done for us, His enemies. Lord, for those who know not Jesus as Savior, draw them to Yourself. And for those of us who do, may we rejoice together with great joy that Christ has reached out to reconcile us to You, our Father. May we learn to live with those who seek to do us harm in a way that displays this Gospel. Help us. For Jesus' sake.